I was at the mall, and as I stood in line, I looked nervously over my shoulder to the left and to the right. I was anxious that somebody I knew, maybe even somebody from church or one of my fellow students, might see what I was about to do. I was standing in a line to see the movie Ordinary People with Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore. It was a requirement in a course I was taking on pastoral counseling. Now, I was relatively new to faith at the time, and there was a lot I didn't know about following Jesus, but there were a few things I did know. Followers of Jesus did not play cards or go to pool halls, dance clubs, or movie theaters. And, and there I was, flirting with the world, anxious that I would be seen, or even worse, that Jesus might return while I was watching the film. Surely I would have been left behind. Now, when it came to living life in the real world, the well-meaning Christian communities, of which I was a part then, tended to major on the posture of escape. Don't do what sinners do. Don't go where sinners go. Avoid gray areas and, if possible, eliminate the gray areas. Come out from them and be different. That is how you live a holy life in a world waiting for Jesus to come back and take us away. But is this what Jesus modeled and is this what Jesus did? Well, we get some clues from John 17 where Jesus prays the following prayer. I have given them your word and the word has hated them because they were not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Have you sent me into the world? So I have sent them into the world. According to Jesus, engagement with the world and not escape is the posture of a Christ follower. Natasha Crane, in her book, Faithfully Different, reminds us that as Christ's followers, we are called to have an influence on the world without bowing to the influence of the world, to be loyal to Christ in a world of competing loyalties. So how do we be faithfully different in a world dominated by other values and priorities? Well, according to Jesus, our calling as his followers is to be faithfully different in the world. So how do we do that? And where do we start? In the next 20 minutes or so, we're gonna set out to address that question. But first and foremost, we need to embrace the reality that engagement, not escape, is our calling in the world. Engagement is about navigating, not escaping the gray areas as the Holy Spirit leads us. Now we're in the middle of a sermon series called Life Hacks, Practical Solutions to Everyday Problems. And in his first century letter to the Christ followers in the city of Corinth, Paul challenges the attitudes and actions in the church that were not representing Christ faithfully or well. They had gray areas of their own to navigate. But before we get to the biblical text, let me set up the context of life in first century Corinth. Let me ask you this question. What makes a city truly memorable? If you are listening today, you are no stranger to city life. Many of you have lived in or visited cities across Canada and around the world. What makes your favorite cities your favorite places to remember and to return to? Is it the geographical setting? Is it the climate? Is it the architecture or the people or the food? Eric Dowdle is an artist and a world traveler. Whenever he visits a city, he paints a montage of images that captures the spirit of that place. 
And then he makes a puzzle of that painting. You can watch his paintings unfold on his show, The Peacemaker. One of his paintings is a painting of Vancouver. I've seen this puzzle. I haven't ever put it together, but it's an amazing picture of Vancouver. It captures everything you think about when you think of Vancouver. There is the Lions Gates Bridge, and there is the Second Narrows Bridge. There is a cruise ship going under the bridge. There's the fuel dock in Coal Harbor. There's Canada Place. There's Rogers Place. There's the Science Center. There's the major buildings in town. There's Stanley Park. And of course, the Grouse Mountain Tram. If Dowdle had the opportunity to visit first century Corinth, what would he have seen and recorded in his painting of Corinth? What images would have captured the spirit of that ancient city? Well, here's what you would see in a Dowdle painting. You would see the Temple of Apollo, the Temple of Athena, the Temple of Poseidon, the god of the sea, the Temple of Aphrodite with its 1,000 cult prostitutes, the Temple of Hermes, the Temple to Octavia, the emperor, the Temple of Jupiter, the Temple of Asclepos, the Temple of Isis and Serapis, the Egyptian gods, the Temple of Demeter with its many dining rooms. And finally, you would see the Pantheon, which was the temple to every god they hadn't thought of yet. And then, of course, the Acropolis or town center. Pagan worship did not just happen in Corinth. It was the happening in the city. It defined the city. It shaped its common life. Corinth was a center of pagan worship. Ray Steadman says this about Corinth. If you had lived in Corinth in the first century, you would have recognized that the whole Roman and Greek citizenry of the city regarded the temple as the most exciting place in town. There you could get the best food served up in an open-air restaurant. They had the wildest music and all the seductive pleasures of wine, women, and song. If you wanted to enjoy yourself in Corinth, therefore, you went out to the temple. Keep in mind that the Christians in Corinth had once been idol worshipers, bowing down before these images, offering sacrifices to them, their lives being controlled by the fear and philosophy of the Greek and Roman gods. With such idolatry and other pagan practices dominating the life and culture in Corinth, it is of no surprise that Paul was concerned about how followers of Christ were dealing with the cultural reality. And so his call is for discernment and dedication and staying true to Christ in a challenging cultural climate. And so in our passage today in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul coaches us how to be in the world, but not of the world. How to engage the world without being engulfed by the world. Paul understood what we sometimes forget, that our lives in Christ are not neutral. We're either trying to honor and please God or serving some false God in our lives. Paul reminds us that we are either in Christ or we belong to someone else. God does not just want a small part of your life, but for your faith in him to frame everything that you do. And knowing this helps us to navigate these gray areas of life as we seek to be loyal to Jesus Christ and loving to those around us. So what does it take to be faithfully different in the world Jesus has called us to live and move and have our being in? Well, number one, being faithfully different takes courage. And this is the public arena of our lives. Now, courage is the resolve 
to do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, regardless of how you or anyone else feels about it. Courage is expressed by the determination to stay true to your values, even in the face of opposition. Discernment is knowing where to draw the lines that you will not cross in order to stay true to Jesus. Courage is not compromising that loyalty, even when it's costly. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 13, Paul has already highlighted how idolatry derailed God's Old Testament people in the past. And now he turns his attention to the threat of idolatry in the present in Corinth. Paul is saying, don't make the same mistake Israel made in going along to get along with its pagan neighbors. Flee from idolatry, verse 14, that's where he begins. You cannot serve two masters. You must make a choice who you will serve, and that takes courage. And so Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Paul here is appealing to the Corinthian believers as sensible people. And he goes on to make a step-by-step argument to persuade these Christ followers to eliminate the threat of idolatry and falling back into their old way of life. And so here's Paul's argument in a nutshell. Pagan idols may be powerless, but pagan ceremonies are not. Meat eaten at an idol feast is associated with pagan worship uh, and is contaminated. To eat it is tantamount to engaging with demonic influence behind the idol. On the other hand, meat sold in the market has lost its religious significance and it's all right to eat. It's, It's one thing to eat sacrificed meat. It's another thing entirely to participate in idol feasts and pagan worship. The word participation is hugely important in this passage. The word is the Greek word koinonia, which means being in communion with or sharing a relationship with. And so here is Paul's argument. He says, first of all, something very real happens when we as believers gather around the Lord's table. We are not just going through a meaningless exercise. We are participating by engaging what Christ has done for us on the cross. And as a result, we renew our fellowship with Jesus. Our participating in the Lord's Supper publicly demonstrates our first loyalty to Christ. Now, you can kind of just look at the Lord's Supper as something that we do and it just becomes a ritual, but when you engage it, you are participating in what Christ has done for you. And then he goes on to the second part of his argument. He said, listen, stepping it back, something very real happened back in the old days when the Israelites ate the sacrifices that they brought to the temple. They sacrificed them, they found forgiveness, and then they participated in those sacrifices. And in doing so, they engaged God's forgiveness, resulting in renewed fellowship with God. Their eating of the sacrifices they brought publicly demonstrated their loyalty to God. And finally, he gets to the point. This is the third part of his argument. Something very real happens when pagans make sacrifices. They are participating in idol worship, resulting in doing business with demons. Their choices reveal their loyalties. And so Paul pulls back the curtain here a bit and teaches us that even though the idols themselves are powerless, there are powerful forces that influence those who entertain them. There are evil spiritual forces in the world trying to keep people from following God. So Paul's call to flee idolatry is because of who we belong to. 
And the danger of idolatry is that we're led to worship many gods. If we are in Christ, then we should be concerned about the actions that distract us from Christ or lead us to worship the wrong things. Now, the specific example that Paul uses in his Corinthian letter is participation in the festivities at pagan temples. But certainly there are demonic forces that work in other areas of idolatry. Now, you and I, we're not likely to be drawn into idol ceremonies in our day, but that doesn't mean that idols are a non-issue. Idolatry is not just a first century novelty, it's also a 21st century reality. In our recent series, Money, Sex, and Power, we learned that when anything or anyone other than God in our lives becomes the ultimate thing in our lives, it becomes an idol for us. Idols are things that our hearts become so attached to that we can't imagine life without them. We live in an idol-filled world. The reformer John Calvin wrote that the human heart is an idol factory. For Calvin, idolatry occurs every time the truth about God is exchanged for a lie because idolatry is essentially the worship of a created reality rather than of the creator himself. Now, something very real is happening whenever we choose to participate in practices and activities that engage our interest in our heart. And Paul is saying it's one thing to engage your stomach by what you eat, but it's entirely another to engage your heart by what you enter into a relationship with. A man I knew and cared for had forged a successful business and prospered financially. He came to faith in Jesus Christ and he was generous with his time and money supporting the ministry of the church that he attended. But there was one aspect of his old life he couldn't let go. He enjoyed gambling. He saw it as a recreational activity. Some people snowboard, some people knit, he gambled. And over time, this interest captured more and more of his attention. And when he passed away, his estate had been whittled down to almost nothing. Now, gambling may not be an issue for most of us here, but what about the other things that we become attached to and hang on to for dear life? The things we feel we can't live without, our job, our relationships, our possessions, our reputations, our appearance, even our cell phones or our social media feedback. We can turn anything into an idol if we allow it to become the ultimate thing in our lives. When we allow ourselves to fall into the place where something becomes of greater importance to us and more controlling in us than God himself, when that happens, we have succumbed to idolatry. Now, one of the great and continuing problems of the life of faith is that we want to make a deep, sincere, wholehearted commitment to Christ expressed in things like the Lord's table. But at the same time, we want to fully enjoy and give ourselves over to everything that is in the world. We live in this tension. And so we need to keep in mind that life is full of choices. It was true in Paul's day, and it's true in ours. And your choices will always expose your loyalties. Your choices will always have consequences, even though you don't see them immediately. Your choices matter. So how are we to act within a society and in a city which frequently acts in ways that may not be what we think are right or true. How can we be salt and light in the world? How can we be in the world, but not become part of the worldliness that we see all around us? It takes courage to draw a line that you will not cross for Christ's sake. It takes courage to remain faithfully different in the world, but it requires more than courage. It also requires a second thing. And so being faithfully different takes compassion. 
This is in the private arena of our lives. Compassion is the willingness to work for the welfare of someone else, even when it's costly. Compassion is caring not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. In verse 23, Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Here's some things that Paul wants us to recognize. Not all options are equally good options. When we make good choices, it will add quality and strength to our lives. But a good option, a good choice, will also add quality and strength to the lives of people around you. How do you recognize a good option? How do you make a good choice? Well, a good option will add quality and strength to your life. It will be beneficial. It will build you up. But a good option will also add quality and strength to the lives of those around you. So how do good choices bless others around us? Paul comes back to this whole business of eating food offering to idols. And so he says this, whenever possible, choose to avoid issues that offend people who are weak, in conscience or spiritually ignorant. He says, don't put unnecessary obstacles in the way of people on their way to faith in Jesus. And he describes two scenarios as an example, as a case in point. He says this, listen, if an unbeliever has you over for dinner, eat whatever is put before you, no questions asked. But if somebody asks you over for dinner and says, oh, by the way, I should probably tell you that this meat is from the temple, then don't eat it. Respect their conscience and maintain your convictions by making the faithfully different choice. Paul was concerned that followers of Christ not be reckless in exercising their spiritual freedom in Jesus by eating the meat sold in the butcher shops after it had been offered to an idol. In the Corinthian context, when it came to meat sacrificed in the temples, Paul encourages them to default to the conscience of the other. Why does Paul encourage such care in relationships? Because doing all for the glory of God means thinking about the good of others, both Christians and non-Christians alike. And in his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes this, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is filled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And your love of your neighbor is a central way you glorify God. Our fellowship is to be with Christ, but our friendship is to be given to non-Christians around us. And so Paul is essentially asking, how do we do that? How do we love one another when it comes to navigating the gray areas? On the one hand, we want to be men and women of unwavering principle. There is a time to take a stand when to do anything else would be to compromise our loyalty to Jesus. But on the other hand, we should be flexible about matters of lesser importance and give way to our brothers and sisters on such things that do not divide us. And so Paul does not want his exercise of freedom to be a reason for the weak to stumble or the non-Christian to judge. So being true to our calling from Christ and maintaining our loyalty to Christ takes courage and compassion, but it also requires just one more thing. Being faithfully different takes commitment. Commitment here is the resolve to honor God in everything you do and in every decision to make. And so this is what Paul writes in verse 31. 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. The main idea of this whole passage can be summed up in the determination to give God glory in all that we do. Following Christ is not just about private and public worship, but it's also about every area of our lives, including our relationships with other people. Whenever we make God known in the world, through our character, through our conduct, and through our compassion, we glorify God. It was Jesus' prayer that our lives for him be lived right out in the midst of the world, just the way it is. And from what Paul has taught, it's clear that separation to Christ does not mean isolation from the world and from non-believers. Remember, although our fellowship is to be with Christ, our friendship is to be given to people who are still on the journey of faith. The practical guideline is don't deliberately offend anyone. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. Now I realize you cannot always avoid offending some people because you've chosen to be faithful to Christ, but when you can, don't go out of your way to offend those around you, whoever they are. Which brings us to today's life hack, today's practical solution to an everyday problem, and here it is. Keeping Jesus in front of you requires leaving idols behind you. Finally, Paul says, live a focused life. He says in chapter 11, verse one, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul the apostle lived a focused life, a faithfully different life in the real world. And he calls us to follow his example. Living to glorify God in all you do gives focus to our everyday life in the world. Glorifying God is about becoming who he created you to be and doing what he's called you to do. And you glorify God when you take a stand for truth and take down the idols in your lives because keeping Jesus in front of you requires leaving idols behind you. Now, if you're really honest today, what are the things or the relationships that are threatening to take over your life? What is it that you cannot live without? What is it that consumes your best time and energy and resources? What would the people around you say about what they see as the most important thing in your life? Today, you can surrender that to God. Keeping Jesus in front of you requires leaving those idols behind you. But you can also glorify God when you live to bless others and not just serve yourself. Those who do not share your convictions and values are not your enemies. Paul suggests they may be victims of another enemy, but your calling is to show them the love of God by not putting obstacles in their way to finding and knowing Jesus. Are you living in such a way as to treat others as Christ would treat them? Is there someone you need to reach out to? Someone with whom you need to reconcile? Somebody who you need to serve in their need? Somebody who you need to be patient with? We impact our world when we live faithfully different lives in the world. Perhaps you're here today and you realize that you've never ever made Jesus the Lord of your life. Other things have crept in and taken over your heart's affections. And today, you just feel the Holy Spirit calling out to you, saying, it's time to trust Jesus Christ. And so I want us to pray this morning. And if this describes you, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, then pray this prayer with me. If you pray it with your heart, you can make a brand new start in your life, open up a brand new chapter, you can let Jesus become the Lord of your life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you have met me here today. 
And Lord, I understand that there's a lot of things that take up my time and attention. I'm not proud of them all. I have wounded people with some of the decisions I've made. They've not always built up other people. And I realize that sometimes I just can't help myself. And I need you, Jesus, to come into my life, to reorder my priorities, to forgive me my sins in the past, and to help me live for you in the present. So Lord Jesus, today, come into my heart and life. Become the Lord of my life. Impart to me your Holy Spirit to help me to live the kind of life that is faithfully different in the world. Lord, I just commit my life to you today in Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, there's something you can do. You can tell somebody who is close to you that you trust, or you can text the number on the screen. There is a pastor on the other end of this number who will get in touch with you this week and help you take the next step in your new life of faith. God bless you, everyone.